Welcome to TBA 21 On Stage, marking the beginning of the 20-year anniversary celebrations of TBA 21 Thyssen Bornemitzer Art Contemporary. This podcast was recorded live during a captivating talk between artist Janet Cardiff and essayist and professor Estrella de Diego Otero, which took place at the Real Academia de Bellas Artes de San Fernando in Madrid on February 16th, 2022. This conversation revisits the work of Janet Cardiff and George Burris Miller, an artist duo whose collaboration has been central to the development of the TBA 21 collection and places it in a wider historical and cultural context while diving into examples of personal artistic practices. Their 2008 sound installation, The Murder of Crows, originally commissioned by TBA 21 for the 16th Sydney Biennale, is presented by TBA 21 in Matadero, Madrid, from February 17th to July 31st, 2022. An important reference to this work is Francisco Goya's etching, The Dream of Reason Produces Monsters, from his series Los Caprichos of 1799, the original plate of which is actually preserved at the Real Academia de Bellas Artes de San Fernando, thus physically anchoring this conversation within the reach of Goya's fascinating oeuvre. For more riveting content, please check out TBA21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org. It's so wonderful being back in Madrid. I work with my partner, George Burrs Miller, who wasn't able to come for the opening. He um, sends his regards. But we, we um, worked in the uh, Palazzo de Cristal about six years ago, I think it was, and present. I don't know if anyone here saw the piece there, mm. but it was kind of a bit of a crazy caravan piece with marionettes and everything. This piece mm. in the Matadero is, is, is quite different. Well, maybe since you started talking about the piece that people are going to see at Matadero, you know, I was thinking of discussing the piece we're about to see tomorrow. When we were planning the the murder of crows, we, were, we thought we would like to make, we'd done filmic work, and it's, it's a really difficult way for us to work, because we don't like to work with a lot of different people. We don't like a big team, we like a small team, but in um, film you need a big team. So we wanted to make a film that was just sound, and so we were working away with it and working away with it, but we found that when it was just straight sound, you tended to get lost. Like, I th we felt that it needed a structure. And um, while we were working on it, we were in Kathmandu uh, adopting a, uh, my, my daughter, who's now 15. And I started, with all the travels in different environments, I started having very bizarre dreams and remembering them all and these, creating these... Um, because we, it was quite a stressful time at times, too. I have this tape recorder that I, I leave next to the bed and I would just be recording my dreams as I was going along, so it's like this sleepy voice that doesn't make much sense. And then we started thinking about, um, at that point, too, seeing again um, Goya's Sleep of Reason mm -hmm. um, creates impossible monsters, and then the Iraq War, and then all these different things that were happening. It just seemed like this sense there was a nightmare that you could not wake up from. Mm -hmm. And so that we, we started putting the dreams in, we realized it gave it a structure that we could work with in three different parts. 
And, um, and that's how that developed. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is why this piece is so interesting. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, while you're sitting there, I mean, you're sitting there and, noth and nothing occurs there. I mean, it, it, you're just sitting and, and there is sound. I mean, it's the only way there is sound. And, uh, and uh, the idea that you're trapped, I think, it, I think it's interesting what you said about the dream and about adopting your daughter, how you were trapped in a reality because you had to wait and wait and wait yeah, until, until something may happen. And I think this is something you translated. Uh -huh. Uh, to, to, I mean, to the spectator that, I mean, we are trapped in the piece. We are trapped because the sound is surrounding us and it's, it's more like, it, and it's interesting, the idea of a cinema, because it's like, I mean, you're trapped in something that is conscious and unconscious at the same time. And I think, you know, this structure that you actually could translate into the piece is something that is quite remarkable and you feel that there's no fake space anymore there's no walking around anymore, but you're trapped in a, in, a, in, in a space which is empty, in fact, and is full of traps, but you reproduce the same idea how sound can make space or can create space, which is so typical in your pieces, I mean, mm -hmm. how you create space uh, about, uh, uh, from sound, which is something that maybe you could go discuss further on. I will talk about what you're talking about being trapped, because I was thinking that just hit me that how a piece of art is always changing its meaning. Coming out of COVID where we all felt trapped, but what I was thinking after hearing it today with you mm -hmm. was how we get all this bombardment of news and everything and um, deaths and you know hearing about um, refugees trying to cross the Canadian border and five of them froze to death you know just a, m a couple months ago and you have all this information and you don't know what you can do about it. You can't do anything. You feel so trapped, right? You, you just feel so helpless so often. And that feeling came to me. We're spectators like we are in our dreams, like the woman in the dream who talks to you um, on the little table in reference to the Goya etching. She's, uh, the speaker is on the table and she's sitting there trapped in her dream, but she's also a spectator. She's walking around, but she can't seem to do anything. Mm -hmm. And she's not doing anything, so there's a guilt of not doing anything, but at the same time, the inability somehow to move when you're in a dream and in a... Because I think this is something extremely interesting about this, um, this uh, work of, you, of yours, because it's very, uh, it's very political, mm -hmm. and it's political in Goya's way in a way because it's like something that is very transcendental it never changes unfortunately i mean you have the russian army you have lots of things that could be unfortunately applied to today today's very situation and uh, and to that certain extent is like creating um, a kind of a situation um, a difficult situation again being trapped not being able to do anything whatever you do is useless that you know I think it's, it's very well translated in that video that unfortunately was Iraq and then is Russia and then could be China and then could be the US and etc etc and this is something that I think I don't know whether this political uh, I mean, you could ex if you agree with me, you could probably yeah, extend yeah. that concept a bit. And, it, and it's, it's made me think also about, um, like you mentioned, the Russian choir. There's one sequence where we recorded a Russian choir 
in Berlin singing the Sacred War, which was a song that was um, composed in 1941 to inspire the Soviet troops to go to war. But it's been used over and over throughout the years, and not only on Soviet radio, but even in, in different countries, as this idea of, um, as a reference to the death in war, but also as sort of inspire, inspiring soldiers. Listening to it for the first time, I was almost overwhelmed when I heard the, 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 the Russian troops coming in because, you know, what's happening right now. And um, so I think that there's so many things that come out in a lot of our works from your conversation that we had a couple weeks ago on Zoom, and we're talking about this idea of political. I started thinking about the works, and to me, there's, there's, there's a side that um, artists are like antennae in that they sort of pick up what's going on and, and sort of then immerses throughout yourself and it comes out in a particular, in your, your own language, whatever that is. I think it's not as much political, but it's how we personally, how the mm -hmm. personal becomes, uh, how we're involved in the politics that, that sometimes we can help change and other times we just feel... Yeah, you know, and I think Janet is political because you're constructing, I mean, you constructed a world through sound and not visually. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of breaking this kind of universal law of uh, Western culture, I mean, is, is very political in a very subtle way. And at the same time, I think, you know, the, the way you established intimacy with the spectator, mm -hmm. That's very political. I mean, no, I'm not only saying it's political in the way yeah, news yeah. from the newspaper, etc., etc. But you know, this sense of intimacy um, that you create and uh, and and how, to a certain extent, all spectators become um, part of your your action and and. And, and kind of a complicity to work. I think you could probably extend that because, I mean, as a spectator, I feel all the time you trap me in the best of ways, you know, in a kind <laughs> of a, in a kind of, in, in your sense of reality, you actually uh, turn me around and I'm confused and I want more. And it, it's a very kind of paradoxical, um, oh, you know, approach that uh, the spectator has because I think he has been deprived from the safe uh, kind of, you know, Place, which is viewing and controlling, you know, your eyes. And instead of that, it's tricky because, you know, sounds are creating new things you don't see. Maybe this kind of intimacy in your work is something you could, how it develops and, uh, and how uh, you, you look for it and search it. I think that um, the audio walks, which first started in 1990, was started through experimentation with just a little recorder and audio mm. recorder walking around and then a four track that I mix things together. It, it started up from play and exploration, but then what I've always found is I always learn from my work so much and George and my work. Mm. And it's, it's in the, the walks have taught me so much about this idea of connection with someone else through voice. But for me, I, I think because of, I was always, not so much anymore, but I was always very shy and sort of the, the sort of relationship with people to actually get to the intimate moment and to get to this, um, which is very difficult, but I found that the audio walks gave me a surrogate relationship with 
the audience. It's a safe relationship. Like you're not like there talking, whatever. But people can feel safe because it's just a Walkman. It's just an iPod. It's just now you know a little iPhone or or a viewer. And but you can walk around, but you can feel connected to this person. And, and I can when I'm doing the writing and the recording, I can feel that I'm just talking to myself. And so um, I did one uh, recently that was in um, the Walt. Disney Hall in, in Los Angeles. And one of the main things is that I kept being told by different people how Los Angeles was one of the loneliest cities. But the irony is, is that there's so many people, right? And, but you spend so much time in highways and in cars. And so I started doing some research on ideas of loneliness. And, you know, there, a few years ago, they were already saying that it was a pandemic of loneliness, and then now with COVID, that's pushed it even mm -hmm. further. So I think that you're right about that art can, can be so powerful and political, even the, the act of being intimate through audio, which mm -hmm. is, it's, it's, doesn't really make any sense, but because it is a, a, it's a medium that works in the past, but it has an ability, audio has an ability to be in the present, even though recorded in the past, and um, affect you in the present in a physical way. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a completely different sense of time. Mm -hmm. Because it's like past can become present, yeah. and you know, at the same time present can take you, I mean, this past present can take you back to the past. As a, you, I mean, in your piece, there is this big storm, and I was joking with you before, saying I was given, uh, I was stitching in um, Urbana Champagne for a while, and I was living in this little house that it was pretty much like uh, the Wizard of Oz. And oh yeah, you know, Dorothy. Yeah, Dorothy. I mean, I just and, and I felt, you know, the house was flying away, and I was so scared when I was sitting at Matadero because you know my mind went back to that through the present, through that past, and you know maybe you know this is something very intriguing, and I think it's so powerful in, in, in your works, and it's uh, the way you actually make uh, the immersive, um, uh, the immersive uh, work you do through sound, and how sound can build a completely different sense of reality that is very effective, and it's very, uh, and you know, it is, and it's, very, it's very effective and very affecting, both things. Well, I think it's sort of like, uh, your sense of sound is very much like your sense of smell. Like, if you've ever been in an Airbnb where you open a closet and it just takes you right back to your, you know, your grandfather's place or something like that. It has this way to transport you. And sound is similar, and I've used that as a technique, actually, uh, being very aware of what words I use to, to try to connect to people's memories, but also which sounds like I remember doing the 1997, the Munster mm -hmm. audio walk for sculpture project Munster. And there was one section where I'm walking on a cobblestone. And so I recorded some horses, you know, and I recorded this, and there were also bicycles going past. So the people unconsciously get all of a sudden shifted way back into when there were actually horses on that street as well as to the present where there's bicycles already passing them by in reality, but also on the, on the virtual um, audio track. So what's been fascinating to me, if, um, if, I, if I were actually um, smarter, I could understand quantum mechanics you know, and physics, but 
the, the dialogue that's going on with um, time and space and is, is really, it made me think today about how you can be in so many different spaces at once and so many different times. And we have it here, right? <laughs> we're constantly, we're all such imaginative people because we're constantly, every moment of our lives, as we walk down the street, we're making narratives, but we're putting ourselves in all these different times and spaces that line up. And with the piece at the, you know, the murder of crows, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much about the dream kind of nonsensical continuity and trying to put sounds and images together in a dreamlike fashion. But I think that happens anyways in our minds. Our subconscious just yeah, you likes just, to entertain us. You just us. mentioned the, the name of the work, and I think, you know, The Murder of Cross. And I think it would be interesting uh, oh. for you to explain that a bit uh, to, you know, yeah. to, to, to our audience. Because I think it's very interesting. Because again, it's like a double meaning, you know. It's like this kind of paradoxical moving between paradoxes, which I think is, makes your, uh, your work so unique. Yeah, the, the title of the piece here is The Murder of Crows, and uh, that's like, in English, it's a way to say a flock of crows. You know, they have a swarm of bees and a, f a flock of something else, and then uh, a murder of crows. It's like a group of crows. And it goes way back to uh, old uh, English and German, I think, but, but the mortar, uh, and it, it started out as uh, because the crows would follow all the soldiers going to war. And they would follow them because then there would be death and there would be bodies and they're carrion birds. So they would, you know, of course, feed on the corpses. So they, they somehow got to be known as um, the connection with murder. Maybe had, it was a different word back then, but anyways, had this sense of death. So we loved the idea of this flock of crows and, and um, in Kathmandu there was all these crows and they were eating things, <laughs> you know, lots of dead, dead little animals around and different things and, and they're kind of in ways similar to the Canadian crows and then so we recorded a lot of crows on the west coast of Canada and we, um, I shouldn't tell you this secret but George actually did the flapping of the wings <laughs> with, with, with two rubber boots following it, going like this around our studio. <laughs> it, it's, uh, the background to some of those sounds is we have an old um, silo, which is, we thought it was an amazing object, and, uh, and a feed plant down the road was throwing it out, so we said, could we have it? So they delivered it to our property, which is a farm in the west of Canada, and so George would, um, he put the microphone inside and then he'd like climb all over and have an assistant to climb on it and bang on it. So that it's, it's, it's a really fun experience to produce a work like that because you get to work with singers and choirs and, and we worked with an amazing Tillman Ritter who is a, a film composer and he does cabaret composing now too, but um, it, I said I wanted this operatic part that's um, about, I wanted to actually tell that little story that I, I, I mentioned that um, there's a part in the film, in the Murder of Crows, where uh, 
I had a dream about encountering a cabin that has a, a that I find just a leg, but it's only a leg from here down. It's just a foot. And so incorporate that. But at the same time, in Berlin, I was reading the Herald Tribune, and there's a story about this Iraqi father. His, he came running home. His house was bombed, and his three daughters were blown to pieces. The one arm was just like hanging on the chandelier like that. And, and whenever I see that, it almost makes me weep. You know, Whenever I hear the piece in The Murder Crows, then we made an opera out of it about where is my arm? <laughs> mm -hmm. Where is it gone? Anyway, so that's sort of the background, how it's how we all sort of, we, we get influenced by all this different stuff and then it comes into, for George and I, it comes into the work. Yeah, and this is this very idea of collage that I think is pretty much present. You know, this collage in the sense oh, yeah. of, and I think it's pretty much present in, in all your work and it's especially in this piece. Mm -hmm. It's like your and and it's, it's and it's dreams because of course dreams never had this as ecological su succession, but it's like a collage of ideas or impressions or whatsoever. And I think you know um, this sense almost of a, a collage that I don't know if you if you if you would accept that as part of uh, your your works and your experience with works. But I have the feeling that it's pretty much uh, part of that collage. It is very much. And um, some of my early art school training, um, I had a British professor who was, you know, we spent two weeks just doing collage. And um, I always remembered, and I, I'd used this procedure for a while, he, he told me that Picasso had a, a technique that in the morning he would get, have a bunch of pieces of paper and stuff, and they would throw it on the paper and just just to tune up, it's like tuning up, it's like doing exercises mm -hmm. for your sense of space. And I did that actually for quite a while, it's because it's, it's, I love the, I, I do little collages in the studio, I have lots of different practice that never see any gallery space, but it's just you throw things around and, and it's like tuning up your sensibility, it's like mm -hmm. a type of meditation almost. Mm -hmm. But we, we have, um, several works that it's very important for the viewer to take part in mm -hmm. and they sort of uh, manipulate the piece in such a way that it, it is a collage but at the same time they create the artwork. I was thinking about dreams and cinema and a collage which is like a, an orderly disorder to a certain extent and I was thinking of about Un Chandalu by Dali and Buñuel, how yeah. it's not true that they're talking about a dream. They're sort of reproducing the, uh, the structure of a dream. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, that a collage is, is a way where you um, sort of your senses open up and, 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 and then you translate that for the public mm -hmm. so that you bring the public where you want the public to be, or the spectator in mm -hmm. your works. And it's, it's very interesting. I was thinking of dreams, the, uh, how dreams work, 
how dreams, dreams are fragmented, I mean, like, like a collage, and then you put everything together and sort of you reproduce the structure of a collage, but it is not really a collage, oh, oh yeah. because it's like a kind of a structure. Mm -hmm. Because when people talk about a chandelier, they said, okay, it's, a, it's, it's about dreams. It's not true, because it's very, it's very carefully projected. So it's more, it reproduces the structure of a dream. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about this method, and it, this is what I felt in your works, that, you're, that it's a, a pre-collage, your sort of structuring in the collage way. I mean, of course, the narrative and the narration is sort of bringing you together, because you want to sort of, you, you wait more. I mean, you wait mm -hmm. for more, you just yeah. want more. But then, you know, lots of different things are taking place at the same time. And for some obscure reason, they all fit perfectly well, which is, uh, which is weird <laughs> because it's, uh, I mean, you sit for a moment in a conscious way and you say, hey, wait a minute. I mean, what, I mean this has nothing to do with that, but it's because you're reproducing uh, this kind of structure where the spectator, the audience, etc., is going to feel absolutely, you know, fascinated and trapped in, mm. in, in a nice way. And what about technology? Because, of course, I mean, your pieces mm. look um, or end sound, um, uh, you know, at a, at a first uh, glance or glimpse, I'm sorry, extremely easygoing. But, of mm. course, I mean, it's, there's a lot of work and, and technical work because um, the easiest they sound uh, have the impression the more complicated they are. You were talking about, uh, yes. you know, your trip to Kathmandu, sort of following the, the, the cross, recording this, that, and, and, you know, maybe that's interesting because when we sit there, we take things for granted, and it isn't true. Mm -hmm. But technology, you're right, we have a very funny relationship with that because it's, we're always, at least for Murder Crows and for 40 Part Motet, and for many of the pieces, we were sort of just on the border of what the technology could do. Like, um, when I had the idea for 40-part motet, it couldn't actually be done because it needed 40 tracks synced of high-quality sounds synced up. And this was in um, two, 2000 or 1999, which is hard to believe it, it wasn't possible back then. But Murder Crows, even doing that when um, what was that, 2007, I think? Mm -hmm. The still, the poor old computer, it was just like chug, chug, because it's playing surround soundtracks as mm -hmm. well as, which are ambisonic, it's called, tracks, as well as um, 98 speakers. And it's all playing at once. One reason why so many visual artists are doing audio now is you can actually see it. You know, you can, yeah, you can move it around, you can play like mm -hmm. collage with it. So yeah, technology, and then when we first did the video walks, they were on little digital cameras with little flip-out mm -hmm. screens. And then they got upgraded to iPods, and then, anyways. We thought they were over at one point because they stopped putting outputs to audio from the little digital cameras. Mm -hmm. And then the iPod came out. And then that has totally changed, not just the world, but also the way people see. When we did our first audio walks, our video walks, people couldn't follow the, the screen on the camera. Now, everybody, that's like a first language. You know, you can take a video and you know that the camera's mm -hmm. moving this way. So it's all this, um, the way technology has a language mm -hmm. has always been interesting to us and how we push the language and then we learn from the language.
and going into more kind of metaphysical level, uh, because I think you know there is a sense of displacement, and there is you were talking about smells before, mm -hmm. smells and sounds, and I was and I was talking about how we feel safe if we actually see and watch, because this is, you know, the Western way to sort of uh, visualize, I'm sorry about the redundance, power. And, uh, but you know, the way through sound and smell you can reproduce that past, etc. cetera. Um, and and, and how, how do you think you, I mean, when you're actually working on a, on a specific work, how can you devise that? How, how can you think about that? The idea of constructing, a, a space and a constructing, with, we're talking the idea of intimacy, the idea of displacement. How do you plan it in a more metaphysical level? Do you have a strategy? Usually the first version of something is pretty bad. So then, w but we always need some sort of first version and then we respond to it. Mm -hmm. And we are, are both fairly intuitive. George is a bit of a technical wizard. He's very good with electronics and, and all sorts of programming and lots of things. And, but we both need to sort of experience it and have, say, a rough edit or whatever before we can actually get right into it and go, well, that doesn't give you this feeling here or that doesn't give you this feeling here. I always thought there's, it's like when I'm imagining a piece, it's, uh, I, I sort of see them inside my head and they're like over there, there. I get lost in this world that is, it's not really visual, it's, an, it's a, a, just another world, another level, level of imagination that, um, um, that is impossible to describe, but it's, uh, it's a very physical kind of thing. And so I've always felt that sound is this, physical world that you can enter into and that it hits you and but you can enter into it as well and uh, it's just responding to that but also imagining it first yeah the, i mean i think it's very uh, it's very clear in your works you know the, the emotional and physical mm -hmm. power of, of, of sound what what sound can create you know and i think it's very beautiful what you said that you have to enter into the that world and i think you is that which pieces to, to the audience. We have to enter into a different world and with different rules. I mean, we have to change the rules and, and this is why it's so emotional probably. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say about entering in because when I f first met George, I was a, a doing my master's in printmaking and he was a, a third year painter and um, he, uh, he dropped out of a painting class because they wouldn't, it was back in the time of abstraction and they wouldn't allow him to paint figures. But anyways, he, he always said that he wanted to make environments that were like his painting, but you could go into the environments. And that's what sort of led us to, we did, fil we did films together, he was gonna go to mm -hmm. film school. And so that's very much an, um, a lot of the influence, the filmic kind of influence, comes from his filmic sense. I think it, you know cinema is pretty <laughs> much in your in, in 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 your work, and I think you know the logics of film and the logics of trapping. Because when, when, when I use the word trap and trapping, I use it in a positive way because I love to be trapped mm. by an art piece. Okay, because I have to actually enter a different space, a different uh, way, a different sort of approach. And, and I think your, I mean, your work is usually very filmic. 
I mean, you, you play with this kind of, you know, conscious and conscious, which is always very filmic. So I, I, I understand that it's pretty much related to that. And how, which is your st strategy? I don't know whether that's the right word to, I mean, what do you expect from us, from, from the viewers? Ah, uh, I if love talented anything. viewers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love talented viewers that make things happen. It's almost in a very spooky way. It's, like, it's sort of like the Einstein spooky happening, right? <laughs> where, um, say, with an audio walk, where I'll be saying of the, on the audio track, there'll be, you know, there's a banana peel here, and then someone will say, oh, there was a banana peel right there. And going, well, you made it happen. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, we loved working in Germany because it was a little different than in North America and Canada. And I think that um, Europe has a different sense of history and time and waiting that the viewers and the participants and listeners were more patient. They had a different relationship to memory. And I think because our work needs a lot of patience sometimes, as well as it, it functions with memory in a way. Audio has a way of functioning that, you know, with a painting, you can look at it around and whatever and stay with it as long as you want, but it's there. And with audio, 10 seconds later, you, sometimes you can't even remember what you heard 15, 20 seconds later. So that I've, in designing audio, we're always having to think about that. We can't make it too long that people can't remember. And, mm -hmm. and it's like putting poetry together. Uh, I think the, the analogy of poetry to our work um, functions well because you have one segment is like one line of poetry but you have to wait for about 10 segments later until those two go together, and then they create um, the effect. But it can't be too long with audio because people can only, and it's getting less and less, I think, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> people are remembering having the attention span of a shorter attention span, but um, maybe. Um, so there's all that planning that goes into it about mm -hmm. the patience of the viewer and how many, you know, ability to, how many footsteps they can take here and how they're getting affected by, say, with an audio or, phys or video walk, how they're affected by their room. Like, imagine this room. If I record this room, then you know exactly where you are when you listen to it. But when you're walking through it, you get a whole other effect if then you go outside into a little alleyway. It's like psychogeography, how we respond. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's why the Montero is, is amazing right now, where, it's, where the murder of crows is installed right now, because it's, it's just so potent, because it used to be a, a, the the ice, uh, the mm -hmm. freezer for a slaughterhouse. So it has the history there. I was thinking of oral history too. Okay, you need time to listen to the I story, mean, to yeah. translate the story. And you know, I have, I mean, in some pieces I get, uh, I feel it's more like oral history. You need time to, to listen to the other and, and then have your own conclusion about mm -hmm. what the other is saying. And so in this respect, I suppose, of course, and we were talking about that too, uh, new technology, the changes in technology have changed our very perception of viewers, listeners, spec audience, mm -hmm. spectators, whatever you want to call us. Um, in what sense? Because now people are using lots of devices 
and uh, we walk, you know, surrounded by sound all the time, etc. And is this, has this, in your view, from your point of view, changed um, the very idea of, you know, approaching the qualities of sound, the qualities of displacement, emotional, creative qualities of sound? This is something that is pretty much intriguing to me. I think it's fascinating. I think we're going through a renaissance of sound because uh, the young, like so many young makers, are so involved and so capable to produce sound and, and the editing programs now available to them. It's like having a piece of paper and a, a pencil for me. It's beautiful the way things are changing mm -hmm. to a certain extent because people, I think the younger generation is becoming more visual and more oral. And it shows you the power of stories as well. It shows you the power of narrative. Mm -hmm and it's back to oral history, mm -hmm. a lot of it. One final question about Goya. Why Goya? Well, uh, his series of works, so often it could be any time, you know, any, any generation. It could be any war. It could be any um, sort of tortured person. It could be anybody sitting at a table having a nightmare. And, um, you know, that like the, his painting, this, the 3rd of May, I think it is, mm -hmm. you know, with the people lined up. You, you can't help but put yourself in that painting. It, you don't even necessarily know which, which war it's referring to or, or, or which execution. But, but, and so I think that Goya, for, for me, is, um, it's taught me so much about how you, you don't have to be so specific about something because we all are together on certain issues. Like if I say something about mother or something, everybody has a mother. You know, you might have different relationships with that mother or, you know, sadness or happiness or different things, but it's, it's a, a common language that he, he was able to tap into that has... Um, that I connected with and, and I think that is so powerful for me. Well, that image, El Sueño de la Razón Produce Monstruos, I think it's a good resume to a certain extent to a very precise situation in Spain, you know, when Agoya was sort of trying to, to develop um, modernity that came from France during those years. But I think to a certain extent, unfortunately, um, for a very long time, this has been the, the story of Spain. Um, you know, Spain for a very long time has been trying to fight to, to get into modernity, not very successfully. And of course, um, uh, not now, of course, but I mean in previous years. And I think, you know, it, and, but he, what he's saying is not only related to Spain. I think it's very true that uh, when the reason only produces monsters, because the more you want to control. Mm. And this is why um, it's so fascinating about this, it's so fascinating about Goya. I mean, he was an ilustrado, you know, somebody who was pretty much for, the, for enlightenment. But at the same time, he's saying, okay, the reason, I mean, enlightenment principle is producing monsters. And so the thing is that this is very contradictory, and this is why, I mean, this, I mean, this idea and this print is so exciting uh, for all of us, is that, of course, um, reason produces monsters, because the thing is that we need monsters, we need otherness 
to to live, to go. I mean, to just to 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 be here, and uh, and I think you know, um, well, enlightenment wanted to get rid of monsters, wanted to get rid of you know otherness, and I think you know, read in from a contemporary perspective, is telling a lot about Spanish history, of course, but I think he's talking about those kind of, of course, universal problems don't exist. But I mean, universal problems within a Western context, okay? Which is something I think we could all more or less agree. I have one thing okay. I would like to add at the very end: is how important the audio environment is. I grew up on a, a, a farm out of the middle of nowhere. I had five siblings, but so outside, if you're outside, it was all very quiet. Now, where I live. You know, you go outside to do some recording and you hear sounds, you know, planes go over and different things. And there's been many different uh, acoustic ecologists working on this issue of the sound environment has increased exponentially. Nobody thinks about the sound of buildings, the sound, how much traffic noise there is, or how this, and how sound is affecting the children. Because I grew up not having to learn to put filters on to block out sound, but if, if children grow up in a very loud environment, then they have to block it out constantly in order to concentrate. And so I think it's very important to um, you know, plant the trees in their cities and just have, you know, try to find quiet spaces for the children. So hopefully having the you know, next generation listening to sound will create a new uh, approach to ideas of silence. TBA 21 on stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemitzer. The content curator is Soledad Gutierrez. The project manager is Nina Speranda. The curatorial assistant is John Aranguren. The audio editor is Alvaro Tior. The theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>